Well, I too want to welcome you to Alliance on this uh, Easter Sunday morning where we've gathered to celebrate the resurrection uh, of our Christ. And usually I say something like, I, I, I particularly want to welcome um, the guests uh, the, who may be here this morning. And, and that's true. We're, we are glad that you're here. But can I also say uh, to the church family, I'm glad you're here. I, I'm glad to be a church family together where that we can celebrate this most important day uh, of the year. You know, through my life, I have been privileged to visit 49 of our 50 states, and I've actually lived in 10 of them. But I'm excited to say that this year marks my 15th in North Carolina, which means I've lived, as of this year, more years here than anywhere else. While I'm not a native, I think that I've earned the right to call Carolina home. You see, second on my list is, is Colorado, where I spent 14 years, and third, strangely enough, is Missouri, where I spent eight years. Now, as you may know, each state has a nickname. North Carolina is the Tar Heel State. Colorado is the Centennial State, so named because it became a state in 1876 at the first centennial. And Missouri's nickname is the Show Me State. Now, that's kind of an interesting one. Lots of guesses as to where that nickname came from. The most popular guess is from a speech delivered in 1899 by Congressman Willard Vandiver, who declared, I come from a country that raises corn and cotton, cockleburs and Democrats, and frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri, and you have got to show me. Uh, the, the, the saying then became, I'm from Missouri, which means I'm, I'm a skeptic, and, and you've got to show me. Well, a, a, a skeptic is defined at dictionary.com as first a person who questions the validity or authenticity of something purporting to be factual, or, and this is actually the third definition, but it's rather interesting, a person who doubts the truth of a religion especially Christianity. Why Christianity? Or important elements of it. You see, there is actually a skeptics society, which is a registered 501c3 organization which provides, uh, I, I guess, education through, uh, through lectures and, and podcasts, the magazine, and, and an online forum. The tagline on their website describes them as, quote, uh, examining extraordinary claims and promoting science. It's interesting, if you go to their website and type in their search engine the word resurrection, there are dozens of articles to read. I didn't read any of them because it costs money. <laughs> but you see, the resurrection is an extraordinary claim. A skeptic. A person who doubts the truth of religion, especially Christianity or elements of it, you know, like the resurrection. Now, I suspect that most of us here this morning are believers, that we're not skeptics, that is, we believe the truth of Scripture, that Jesus was the Son of God, that He was crucified, buried, and raised again the third day on that first Easter Sunday morning. But perhaps, perhaps you are here and you've, you fall into that other category of, uh, 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 of being a skeptic. You'd say, I'm from Missouri. You've got to show me. And so, 
since this is Easter, a day that we traditionally celebrate the resurrection of Christ, the important, extraordinary element of our faith, let's take some time away from our study in Ephesians and look at that often told story from Mark's gospel and perhaps see if we can affirm your already firm faith or perhaps perhaps move you from being a skeptic to being a believer like us. I at least want to nudge you in that direction. Skeptics of Jesus, both His person and His resurrection, have always existed, even from uh, His earthly days. There have always been people who questioned who He was and, and what He did, people who never quite figured Him out. For, for example, after His arrest, the religious, political, and I would add highly skeptical Jewish leaders interrogated Him. In Mark chapter 14, we, we read these words. Uh, again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, <coughs> Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus unambiguously answered, I am. Now, every once in a while you run into people who say Jesus never claimed to be um, the Son of God or God. Well, He did, right there. And, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And those are in all caps because that's a quote from Daniel, which is a clear self-statement of deity. The, the, the high priest got it because it says, tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the, well, the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Jesus claimed to be the Christ, well, and of course, they still didn't believe it. The claim was, well, it was far too extraordinary, even blasphemous. And so they took Jesus to Pilate, convincing, convincing the governor to have Jesus crucified. And last Friday, if you were at our Good Friday service, I read to you from Mark's account of the crucifixion. Those skeptical religious leaders, after Jesus claimed to be the Christ, and, and while He was hanging on the cross, said this. We read these words. In the same way, the chief priests also, uh, uh, along with the scribes, read skeptics, were mocking Him among themselves and saying, He saved others, He cannot save Himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross. Now notice this so that we may see and believe. Did you catch that? We're skeptics. You got to show me. They wanted observable proof, I, I suppose, that fit the, the scientific method. Jesus come down from the cross, then and only then we'll believe. For them, seeing is believing. Never mind, never mind that Jesus had already provided many proofs throughout his life. Think of it. He healed all those who were sick. He calmed storms. He drove out demons. He fed the hungry. One day he, he fed 5,000 with a single boy's lunch. Besides that, he raised the dead. Those miracles were undeniable. There were too many witnesses. There was too much empirical evidence. You see, people born blind or, or, or deaf 
or lame now stood before them seeing and, and hearing. This was undeniable. So, so, so these skeptical leaders said, listen, what you're doing, you're doing by the power of Satan. We can't deny the miracles, so we'll just deny the power, the source behind the miracles. So, so Jesus, come down from the cross, then we'll believe. We want more proof. Now, we know historically that Jesus did not come down from the cross. You see, earlier these religious leaders had said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Yeah, you've given us a We want some more. We need more evidence. And Jesus told them, All you want are signs. No more will be given. Only one sign remains. Only one will be given as Jonah was in the belly of, of the fish for three days, so also the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. In other words, skeptics, the resurrection is all you'll get. And, and then, of course, even though he was raised from the dead the third day, people denied it then and today. I, I need more proof. So, let's look at Mark's account of this story and see what we can learn. Let's examine, let's examine the evidence together. We'll follow this very simple outline. We're going to see the burial at the end of chapter 15, followed by the resurrection at the beginning of chapter 16. And hopefully in the process, we'll answer some of your reasonable, rational, skeptical questions. But, but I need to be honest with you. I, I need to tell you at the outset that when I'm finished, it will still require faith to believe. Jesus did not come down from the cross. Jesus will not appear in bodily form on the stage with me, as much as some of you would like that. It's going to take faith to believe. And my hope is to nudge you ever so gently in that direction. So let's start by reading about the burial in Mark chapter 15, verses 40. We're actually at the crucifixion there, verses 40 and following. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they, these women, used to follow him and minister to him, and, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, was, well, were looking on to see where he was laid. Now, 
I start with the burial for two very important reasons. First, to establish that Jesus was indeed dead. You see, some people today want to suggest that Jesus wasn't really dead. I guess we could say He was just mostly dead. Because historically, historically, there can be no denying that Jesus of Nazareth, this itinerant teacher who had said some rather amazing things, gathered a following, purportedly did some, some amazing miracles, no denying that this guy was also crucified, buried, and was later seen by many witnesses. So you have to do something with that. And so skeptics who deny the resurrection, got to see it to believe it, say he wasn't really dead. We'll establish this morning that he was. And the second reason that I start with the burial is to establish that there were some rather consistent witnesses to this fact. Again, some skeptics today want to say, well, well, they went to the wrong tomb. They, they, They went back and they were confused. <coughs> so let's examine the evidence together, starting with, please notice that Jesus was dead. It was late afternoon, Friday, preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. It was against Jewish law from Deuteronomy for, notice, corpses to hang overnight from a tree. So the, the other gospel writers tell us they came to Pilate and asked that the prisoners, that is Jesus and the two robbers who were crucified with Him, asked that their legs be broken so that they would become corpses. You see, at this point, they weren't yet corpses. When you were hanging by crucifixion, you had to push yourself up in order to exhale and to take another breath. And this agonizing, torturous death could actually go on for days, two or three days. By breaking legs, breaking their legs, it speeded their death so that they no longer could push themselves up for a breath and they died more quickly, actually by asphyxiation. When they came to Jesus... They found that he was already dead. Now, this was unusual, as again, those crucified usually lasted much longer. Of course, we know that that he was already dead for a couple of reasons. First, he gave up his spirit, and it was also a fulfillment of prophecy that not one of his bones would be broken. and yet, so, so what they did is they, they, they came to those two robbers. They took a wooden mallet and crushed their legs, hastening their death. They came to Jesus, already dead. And yet, one of the soldiers took a spear and pierced him in the side, uh, piercing his heart. And there's something else that is unusual about this story, this burial, and that is the fact that Joseph of Arimathea came and asked for the body. Typically, bodies would only be released to family members if they were released at all. You see, Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, not a Christian, 
said that crucified criminals uh, were forbidden burial. And, and, and also, if you were crucified for high treason, and remember the plaque that they affixed to Jesus' cross, King of the Jews, make no mistake about it, He was crucified for high treason, it was a common charge, you would not be released at all, but you would be buried in a common grave reserved for criminals in the case of Jerusalem outside the city walls. Why do I point this out? It's a significant point. If Jesus had been thrown into a common grave, anyone, to include wild animals, could have stolen His body, which is normally what happened. By being buried in a tomb with a stone in front, guarded by Roman soldiers, it authenticated that Jesus was dead and buried. There could be no mistaking later that His body was miraculously gone. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich member of the council, the Sanhedrin. For him to ask for the body of Jesus, was, Jesus was tacit to claiming to be a, his follower. It was political suicide for him, which is why he re, we read that he had to gather up courage. Came to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. He summoned the centurion, the executioner whose business was death if Jesus was indeed dead. This was likely the centurion standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus breathed His last. The centurion, no doubt, would have witnessed the spear thrust into Jesus' side, and he would have watched as the blood and the water poured out as Jesus' heart was pierced. Again, execution was His job. He knew Jesus was dead, affirmed the same to Pilate. Who then rather oddly, released the body to Joseph. And by the way, the word for body in verse 45 is the only place that this particular word is used of Jesus. It's a very specific word, and it literally means corpse, carcass. He released the corpse of Jesus to Joseph, who in turn we read elsewhere, with the help of Nicodemus, wrapped the body in linen and spices, about a hundred pounds of spices. Jewish bodies were not embalmed. The spices were simply there to help keep down the stench of decay. The point that I want you to see is that there were several witnesses to the death of Jesus, the centurion, the, the, the Roman soldiers, Joseph. His servants no doubt helped. Nicodemus, the Roman guard. Not only that, please notice the presence of some women. Mark seems to go out of his way to mention them throughout this three-day ordeal. Back in verses 40 and 41, we saw they were present at the crucifixion. He even names them. Mary Magdalene, or that is from Magdala. Mary, the mother of James the Less and, and, and Joseph. And Salome, who we read elsewhere, is the mother of James and John. They had followed Jesus from Galilee in the north, uh, around Galilee in the north, ministering to Him. They were His followers. They knew who Jesus was. They'd spent time with Him. They had cared for Him. They followed Him to Jerusalem. 
Then we see in verse 47 that two of these three women were also present at the burial, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph. It was late Friday afternoon, right before the onset of the Sabbath, begins at sundown. Mark says specifically, they saw where they laid him. Please understand me. It was not until centuries later that skeptics began suggesting that people actually went back to the wrong tomb. Got to do something with the fact that Jesus' body wasn't there. Wrong tomb. The fact is, these women were eyewitnesses to his burial. It is also significant to note that early on, no one disputed that the body was gone. No one did. In, in the historical record. Even um, the, the made-up story of a stolen body in Matthew chapter 28 signifies that the body had vanished, stolen from right under the noses of the Roman guard. Chapter 16, we read that those same three women were present at the resurrection. In other words, there was a consistency. That's the second thing I want you to see. First, Jesus was dead. Second, there was a consistency to the witnesses. These women saw it all. This brings us to the second major point, the resurrection in chapter 16, verses 1 and following. Read that with me. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices probably Saturday evening so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And these women went out. They fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's not the way that you would write this story if you made it up. It's very early Sunday morning. These women bought spices to anoint the body of Jesus, not for embalming, just to keep down the smell. Plenty of Jewish tombs from this time period where decayed remains are, are still there with uh, empty bottles to authenticate this practice. They, they came early on the first day of the week. Notice the, 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 the detail. The sun was shining, which means they didn't get lost. They knew where the tomb was. On the way, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They had seen the stone that was rolled in front, and they knew, as Mark tells us in verse 4, that it was extremely large. It was either a large boulder or more likely a large disc that had been hewn out of the rock in the shape of a millstone. 
there would have been a channel cut out in front of the entrance. This large disc would have been rolled down the channel over the entrance. It would have been very difficult to roll the stone up out of the entrance. Not only this, the the women were apparently unaware that a Roman guard had been posted to secure the tomb, and a Roman seal had been placed over it, meaning, barring a miracle, there was no way in the world they were going to get into the tomb. The guard on the sentence of death would not have let them pass. Mark does not mention this detail, Matthew does. When they arrived, we read, they saw that this extremely large stone had already been rolled away. They entered the tomb. Likely it was an antechamber or a small foyer, which would have had small rooms cut out of the back of it. Many such tombs found today display this, a small foyer with small, usually two-foot high doors cut out of the back leading to burial rooms. The amount of labor involved to create such a family crypt cost tons of money. Only the richest had these kinds of tombs, like Joseph of Arimathea. Now, please remember, side note, please remember, Isaiah 53 prophesied that the Messiah, while His grave would be assigned among wicked men, you know, the common grave for criminals, yet He would be found with the rich. 700 years before the Messiah was born, Isaiah prophesied how he would be buried. Coincidence? That's an extraordinary claim. You decide. Now, at this point, all we have is an open tomb. And even if it was empty, all that it would communicate is that the body was missing. Listen to me. There is no historical value at this point to resurrection. It simply raises a very important question, what happened to the body? So, when they entered the tomb, God provided the answer. They saw a young man sitting at the right, likely in that antechamber, wearing a white robe. Matthew tells us there were two. Matthew, uh, Mark just probably records the one who spoke. This white clothing is meant to identify him as an angel. Matthew tells us they were angels and that their clothes were, in fact, dazzling white. And we read that the women were amazed. It's actually a little stronger word than amazement. They were distressed. It speaks of a feeling of dread. They'd come to anoint the body of Jesus, and it's gone. Dread. And the angel said to them, don't be amazed. Same word, distressed. Don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Now notice, you're looking for the one who was crucified. You're you're looking for the one who was put to death. You've come to the right place. This is his tomb. You've not come to the wrong place tomb. He doesn't say, up, wrong address. It's the one next door. Doesn't say that. He says, look, he he is not here. He is risen. Behold the place where they laid him. And the angel likely pointed to a smaller room where a shelf would have been cut. No body. There were no bodies at all. It was a new tomb. All that remained, the other gospel writers tell us, were grave clothes. 
that linen shroud that Joseph had bought and wrapped Jesus in. Then the angel tells them, go, tell his disciples. And Peter, stop right there a second, Peter. In all of the gospel accounts, the last place that we find Peter at this point is in the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus was being tried. Jesus had told Peter earlier, before the rooster crows, you will deny that you know me three times. And three times, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. The rooster crowed, and Jesus and Peter make eye contact, and we read that Peter went out and wept bitterly. And that's where we left him. And so now the angel very graciously, no doubt, by instruction from from Jesus, singles Peter out. Go tell the disciples, even, even Peter. I'm raised from the dead. I'm going on to Galilee, just like I said. I'll meet you there. And there you have it. That's the proof. That is the empirical evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. He was dead. There can be no denying it. He was buried. There can be no denying it. There were plenty of witnesses, consistent witnesses to both of those facts. Centurions, soldiers, Joseph, Nicodemus, those ever-present women. They had followed Jesus all over Galilee. They knew him. They were at the crucifixion. They were at the burial site. This is all well attested. This is credible eyewitness testimony. But I've got to point out, in order to to be honest, I've got to point out a couple of things to you. First, have you ever noticed that there was no human witness to the actual resurrection? Yes, there were angels who shared the news. Yes, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, to the 12 minus Judas, to Peter, to James, to 500 witnesses at one time. But there was no human witness to the actual resurrection. It is suggested by some that when the angels came down and caused the earthquake to remove the stone to which the Roman guard fainted, It is suggested they only moved the stone so we could see in and see that the body was gone. I need you to know that. And and as for those credible witnesses, you have to understand in the world of that day that women were not considered credible witnesses. They were not even allowed to testify in a court of law. Why do I point this out? Because if you were making this story up, if you were fabricating it, if you were inventing it, you would not have women as your primary witnesses. You would have selected Peter or James or John, not women. But these consistent women were the first witnesses to, well, they were the first witnesses to the empty tomb. The body was gone. And I want you to understand that it took divine revelation, the message of an angel, to let them and us know what happened. He's not here. 
He's risen from the dead, just like he said. The truth is, everything happened just like Jesus said it would. And the response of the women, verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, at least at this point, for they were afraid. This is not what you would write if you were making this up. And they went yippity-skippity back to the disciples to tell them he's a, you wouldn't even have them there. Fear is an appropriate response to divine revelation. This all lends further credibility to the account. You should also notice that Mark actually ends his gospel here. You see, with this closing statement, he wishes to say to us, now listen, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, complete with the resurrection, is beyond human comprehension. It's beyond figuring out. And therefore, faith is the only response. I told you at the beginning, at the end, it is going to take faith for you to believe. There is lots of credible empirical proof that Jesus was raised from the dead. But in the end, it cannot be, I'll believe it when I see it. I want to say to you, you've got to believe before you'll ever see. You cannot be like the skeptical religious leaders who said, come down from the cross, then we'll see and believe. You can't even be like Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, who was not present when Jesus first appeared to the others. They, 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 Thomas comes in, they tell him, Jesus, Jesus is alive. He was here. And he says, Thomas says, I will not believe it unless I see it. Unless I can put my finger in a nail prints and put my hand in the side where, his, where the spear went. For Thomas, seeing was believing. And Jesus shows up a few days later and says, Thomas, here you go. And then Jesus said these very important words to you. Because you have seen me, Thomas, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Jesus will not be appear before you on stage this morning and say, here you go. Will you believe me now? There is plenty of historical, empirical proof. In fact, I want to say very gently but very firmly, it's all you're going to get. One author I read said it this way, the events of Jesus' resurrection, the event of Jesus' resurrection is open to understanding only through a word of revelation received by faith. So my simple question for you this morning is will you cease being a skeptic and join a room full of people who believe? Let's stand for prayer.